Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Welcome to a very special live episode of Berlin Side Out, uh, the foreign affairs podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, and we are live at the Pirate Security Conference here in Munich for a second edition of what we are calling Munich Side Out. It is in honor of the agenda setting foreign policy uh, conversations uh, we are hearing in the Bavarian capital on um, this particular weekend, uh, this year and every year. Um, as always, I'm Aaron Gasparnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. Uh, And I'm here with my friend and co-host, Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow at the Council, who has just given um, a keynote speech at this year's PSC, Pirate Security Conference. Firstly, I'd like to say uh, a big thank you to uh, you, our hosts, the Pirate Security Conference, uh, for having us and for hosting this special live uh, episode, We, uh, where we also hope to hear from you, the audience, uh, through your questions about the themes uh, we will talk about. Uh, ben, you just gave a great speech um, that's uh, not short on scary warnings. Uh, we are sleepwalking into defeat in Ukraine by not giving it what it needs to win when it needs it. Uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz hasn't yet said that Ukraine should win this war. That's a point that you uh, brought up um, in the speech and also something that's very important that he say um, in terms of the measures that need to need to be taken. Um, he has said that it shouldn't lose. Uh, that's obviously something different than saying it should win, but losing is now, unfortunately, a real possibility. Uh, we still have haven't seen uh, Taurus missiles delivered to help Ukraine hit those targets that it currently cannot hit with the kit it has right now, including the storm shadows that the, U, um, that the UK and France have delivered. Uh, Ukraine has asked Germany for these. Germany can deliver them, and Schultz still chooses not to do that. Uh, we don't have enough ammunition. And by not acting, now we're risking Ukrainian defeat, and that endangers all of us because Putin will simply not stop. Um, he'll keep aggressively trying to expand his borders like an imperial czar until he is stopped. Um, and stopping him is going to uh, get more and more expensive um, the longer we wait to do that, especially if he's not uh, contained in Ukraine right now. We've heard a lot of self-congratulation in Munich this weekend as well um, about hitting that 2% of GDP target that Germany um, you know, will on defense spending, the NATO goal. Uh, Germany will hit that for the first time in 30 years, since 1990, I believe. Um, but if we fail in Ukraine, that congratulation should be pretty short-lived because we will just need to spend more. It'll get more expensive. Uh, and your speech got me thinking about our discussions on grand strategy, uh, neo-idealism, um, how Germany needs a new grand strategy strategy. So let me um, add this. Defense Minister Boris Pistorius uh, might say we need to be war ready, kriegstütig. Um, but even that doesn't go far enough because uh, that is a strategy that has the simple goal of surviving mm -hmm. uh, rather than winning. And uh, if we need, a, I think a new strategy needs to focus on, uh, first of all, understanding that we are in a systemic um, conflict between uh, democracy and authoritarianism. Neo-idealists can come from all kinds of political traditions. Uh, but that's something that neo-idealists will generally accept, that we are in a systemic conflict between democracies and authoritarians. No matter what political tradition a neo-idealist comes from, they will generally accept this, and they will want to actually win. Um, so we have instruments on the table that we're not using. Um, wanting to win means doing everything possible. Uh, to win. You've mentioned a few things that um, need uh, to happen for that. I would uh, echo those things. Taurus needs to be delivered. 
And we do need to be seizing those Russian assets that have been frozen mm -hmm. since uh, the beginning of the war. These are two instruments that are on the table that we could take the decision right now. Uh, and if we did that, I think we would be demonstrating that we actually want to win um, this uh, systemic conflict, first in Ukraine and then more generally. So let me uh, throw first with a question to you before we come to uh, the audience. What else do you think is necessary to really demonstrate uh, that... Uh, we're ready to live up to our ideals, that we accept um, that we need a new strategy that is anchored in our values, neo-idealism, and that mm. we want to win. Sure. Th thanks, Aaron, very much indeed for that. Um, I mentioned the five things in the speech. Mm -hmm. First of all, uh, giving Ukraine what it needs to switch to active defense, holding the line in 2024 in order to be able to go on the attack in 2025. Second, you mentioned it already, seizing the assets. They're right there waiting for us. This is purely a question of political will. Where there is the will, there is a legal way. And um, we actually, uh, together with the International Center for Ukrainian Victory, commissioned a lawyer to do research into this for us, uh, Patrick Heinemann. A big shout out to Patrick, uh, who's done sterling work on this. And you can read his blog post article about this. And we're preparing an analytical report on how this could actually be done. Um, but again, it's a question of will to do it. Uh, so, one, give Ukraine what it needs to switch to active defense while preparing the ground for attack. Second, uh, seize the assets. Third, we need to get Ukraine a clear invitation to join NATO and to have a clear path to, to that happening. But for that to happen, we need to make that compelling offer of burden shifting. We need to stand up as Europeans and do more for our own security. Only Poland of the large European countries is rearming in a serious way. Poland is spending 4% of GDP on defense, is buying close to 1,000 main battle tanks from, from Korea, plus another 300 from the US. That's the kind of rearmament that Germany is still talking about, that Poland's actually doing. We're talking hundreds of HIMARS, we're talking F-35s, full range of capabilities they're putting together. But Poland needs backup there. And we do actually have, as European states, a lot of good capabilities, but we don't join them up well enough at the moment. We need to also back that up with uh, nuclear deterrence. We need that full spectrum capability. Otherwise, quite simply, we are vulnerable to nuclear blackmail. And we've seen how that impacts the chancellery and others. Um, so th that's the, the third point. Um, fourth, all of this entails stepping up our defense production rapidly. Um, and large-scale orders should come with a commitment from industry to work extra shifts to boost the capacity as well. We've seen ammunition manufacturers in Sweden switching to five shifts a day. It's possible to do it. It's possible to do it in a country with worker protections, if you want to. We've heard, uh, you know, the plans to increase ammunition production factories here in Germany have fallen foul of planning regulations, environmental regulations, uh, a local... I mean, this, this really is a question of priorities at this stage. And so clinging to that world of yesterday and those kind of luxury problems that we, we had is not a way to, to go for the future. But fifth, and this is really worth emphasizing, Aaron, is the easiest easiest step that Germany could take and the one with the most immediate effect is for Chancellor Olaf Scholz to say Ukraine should win the war and to be very clear that that's the goal which then defines the means to achieve it and gives people the rallying point to step behind. So I think there's those things we could do and you, you mentioned Boris Pistorius. Defence Minister Pistorius is one of those who gets it. I think that's been fairly clear in the way he's spoken. Also at this conference he talked about the need to go beyond 2% of GDP in defence spending. The 2% figure in itself can be misleading because it depends what you get for that. Accounting fixes and pension payments deter nobody. But Pistorius was talking on in the main hall of the MSC yesterday about the need to go to those Cold War levels of defense spending, potentially. He was reluctant to give a particular answer for political reasons, but was clear it could mean 35 or 4% if 
we need to make that massive capability increase to really deter Russia. But of course, what would really truly deter Russia and prevent us from having to do that would be winning in Ukraine. At the moment, we are choosing the most expensive way to make ourselves less safe. That, let that sink in for a moment. We are baking in all the costs of defeat and none of the benefits of victory with our current approach to Ukraine. We stand to create a country that doesn't work for Ukrainians, that Ukrainians won't return to, that will be a pressure point for Putin to use against us in future. And for a lot of people in Germany who are thinking about issues like migration, I mean, I think we would, uh, you know, there's been huge benefits to having more Ukrainians here with us, but forced migration is not a solution for anybody. And if Ukraine does not win, we could see a migration wave of 10, 10 million people coming to us. Now, as, as someone who sees the benefits of migration, I think we shouldn't be entirely negative about that. But we have to be clear that, again, disorganized, forced migration is not the way anyone should be forced to leave and is not something that we are prepared to deal with. So even if you're a pro-migration person, you should not want 10 million ref Ukrainian refugees coming. And certainly, if you're anyone who values the democratic system in Germany, the arrival of 10 million refugees would put this under extreme pressure. So again, make sure that people understand this when you're talking to them. Ask your MPs, do you want to deal with 10 million refugees? And if so, how are you planning to do it in a way that the IFD doesn't get in? Well, also refugees who, who would prefer to be at home. That's right? the point, yeah. Who, who you know, want to um, and deserve the chance to build um, a prosperous country for themselves. Um, and that's something uh, that I think also that, um, uh, you know, neo-idealists would be very committed to as well, seeing uh, not simply Ukraine as an obligation that we have, but also as an opportunity, um, as a potential partner, both in NATO and in the European family, to really be able to, you know, to to help to actually build a, a new Ukraine that is a part of the European family, that is prosperous, that is, um, you know, that, that, that is democratic, um, that shows us um, sort of the, the, the benefits uh, of all of that as a new standard bearer, but also it is a potentially very, very attractive uh, new partner. It's a very resilient society. Um, it's obviously an agricultural superpower. We don't talk about this enough. We've yeah, about it can opportunities. Be, it can be a green energy superpower as well. Yeah. This is where there's already investment and thinking going into this, but make no mistake, unless there's a clear plan for victory with security, then the necessary investment will not come. Ukraine would have to focus on, in, in any situation where there was a negotiated solution, it would focus on becoming a garrison state. And the chance for us to see, to have Ukraine as that frontier state of our better future, showing exactly those qualities that we have, we have often been lacking in Western Europe in recent years, that, that will to fight for democracy, that will to fight to live in freedom and to harness the benefits of it, to live well by doing so. We shouldn't be ashamed of prosperity. We shouldn't be ashamed of wanting a future of more. And that comes with freedom. And that's what I think Ukrainians are striving for. But we have to give them the base to do that. And that helps us all if we get that right. Yeah. And I would say, uh, too, that um, with Ukraine showing us sort of an example of not simply how you uh, defend yourself, but also um, how you run a democracy um, in a challenging time. We've even seen uh, Ukraine do some incredible things, even on, on, on social policy, uh, for example, even uh, the, for the rights of, of uh, gay and lesbian veterans, for, um, for example, that sort of thing. We've seen um, th this country basically decide we are still a democracy, we're going to still behave as one, even though we are under threat. That's, I think, inspiring um, for all of us to see, but I think uh, the, the big lesson, um, and we should make this 
point that this is something that neo-idealists would also generally accept, um, that uh, we have to be able to defend our societies and defend our democracies, but we also have to be able to um, ensure that those democracies are worth defending, um, that they are um, still prosperous societies, that they are still liberal societies, that they are still open societies. Um, and that in turn makes us more attractive also to countries in the global south and, and that sort of thing. Right, this is right. I mean, defending liberal democracy goes hand in hand with renewing liberal democracy mm -hmm. and actually renewing the promise that we make to be both morally as, but also materially superior to offer a better model. We have to really truly live up to that and fix a lot of the cracks in our societies. And as you say, Aaron, that will help us spread that. I, I, we've been working on neo-idealism for some time now. I hope some of you have some uh, exposure to that. I spoke here about it last year. Some of you are veterans from that, that talk, still came back for more, which is great to see. Um, and together with Aaron, we're, we're working on really a way to um, conceptualize what are the key pillars of a neo-idealist approach, because I think we've put the, the approach now out into the public. It's been widely engaged with, widely criticized by the so-called realists and others. Um, but... We, we've got enough traction with it that we want to take it forward. And I'd love to have your comments on this in the, in the discussion. But just to put it out there, we've come up with an approach that would have roughly 10 pillars. So bear, bear with me while I just name these a second, and then we can ask more about them if you're interested in it going forward. The, the first one would be value primacy. So the, the centrality of values to a geostrategic approach based on neo-idealism, which basically sees that our values are actually our fundamental and long-term interests. And so if you look after those values, the rest of the interests will take care of themselves. And that resonates with what um, Annalena Baerbock said last year when she, in English, said the distinction between values and interests is, quote-unquote, total crap. Direct um, quote. <laughs> it was. It was good frank talking. Um, so value primacy. Second, military readiness. And that means having the capabilities to defend yourself, but also the attitude, the mindset, and the arguments to bring our population with us to do that. Third, effective internationalism. Actually getting our international institutions fit for purpose. And I'd highly recommend reading Estonian Foreign Minister Margus Tsarkner's piece in The Guardian from December last year, which you can find in our show notes, um, when he's talking about the last two years have shown the dangers of great power politics unchecked by an effective international order. And so understanding how we could make the UN work as it's supposed to, or other international institutions work as they're supposed to, by focusing again on the values, on the purpose of these institutions, not the process, by focusing on the outcome rather than the institutional design and so on, and actually focusing on the politics um, rather than the, the process. So saying, when process is, a, is an institutionally entrenched way to admire the problem. It's a real excuse often for dealing with us staying by the rules. I mean, you've probably heard me say before, following the rule, we followed the rules and burned the house down is not a credible approach to politics or, or anything else. If your rules are not working for what they're supposed to deliver, then you need to change the rules and you need to change the formats in which they're enforced and how they're, how they're made, actually. Fourth, this might surprise some people, but uh, geoeconomic realism now, I don't mean realism in the international relations sense that is totally unrealistic. I mean actually being realistic about our, um, the, the costs that come from certain kinds of economic relationships. The mercantilism, Chinese mercantilism that was dressed up as free trade, authoritarian dependencies, these kind of things really hurt us, but we didn't properly factor in the costs of that. Instead, we looked only at the cheap, short-term opportunities. So a bit of geoeconomic realism, which would also imply things like friendshoring and the national yeah. security premium. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one thing that we should mention here quickly on geoeconomic realism is exactly what you said, recognizing um, the costs of becoming dependent on authoritarians. Of course, uh, we often like to say Russian gas seemed very cheap until we spent, you know, we're ready to spend 200 billion euros to get ourselves through a single winter, you know, and what happens if uh, to our energy transition in Germany, if suddenly the solar panels uh, that we get from China, you know, if those are put into a doubt. So uh, this is a, a huge um, pillar of neo-idealism that I think we have to talk about more. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's where I would give credit to the Titan vendor. It's made conversations that were impossible two years ago, not only possible, but necessary. So talking about our energy mix in geopolitical as well as ecological terms, in geopolitical as well as economic terms, that, that is discursive progress and the discursive field sets the parameters for action. You have to win the ideas before you actually win the, the action. And so this is what, what we try and do and how we try and feed into that. So that, those are the international four aspects, I think, of neo-idealism as an approach. But what we've also really tried to do is to take this into the domestic sphere and that this is where we're going a little bit out. You're the first people to hear this side of it. This is going to be released as an article, hopefully in a few weeks. But we want to test drive it a little bit here. So uh, buckle up. The Exclusive fifth, look yeah, for you guys. Right. First look here at the real conference in Munich this weekend. Um, so inclusive dynamism. This means harnessing the power of free societies and free people. This is our competitive advantage and we need it to produce economic dynamism. So we need to actually generate that prosperity. There is no security without prosperity and vice versa, but we need that prosperity and that means using our advantage in that way. But it also means including people in the benefits of it. So there's a mixture here between a social democratic approach of in inclusion and redistribution and the economic dynamism that we normal, more normally associate with the, um, the centre-right. Now, what, before I went to DC last week, I was in California um, for, a, for a tech and social science event, which was really fascinating. And I had the chance there to speak to Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist. We sat down for about an hour and, and talked everything from Ukraine to what comes after neoliberal economics. And I was really encouraged by what I heard because I asked him, I said, you know, you know this far better than I do. Who should I be talking to about what comes after neoliberalism? And he said, we, we don't know yet. We've got excellent critiques, but we haven't yet set the ground for the new paradigm to follow. But one thing that he said that really struck me was under the neoliberal model, we did not set the right incentives. We created not incentives for innovation and growth. We created incentives for excess profit making, rent seeking and vulnerability. And for a Nobel Prize winning economist to say that, I found it really striking because often I've received the criticism, you know, you, you want dynamism, but you also don't want neoliberalism. I said, yeah, there's, there's, more, <laughs> there's more ways to be dynamic than, than just neoliberalism. And to hear Stiglitz saying that was a real encouragement. So this is something we need to do more work on going forward. And we, we are reaching out to as many economists as we can to do this. So that's inclusive dynamism. Six, eco-modernism. We have to address our ecological challenge getting our geostrategy and climate change right are not either or options. We have to do both. But I don't see a chance of doing this if we say a sustainable future is a future of less rather than a future of more. I don't see that appealing to people. To make the necessary sacrifices, the necessary investments to change if you say this is only to make it less or to stay the same. I, I simply don't see that working. So how to do this, how to actually generate sustainable growth. And there was, uh, there was another person in Washington I was speaking to who said, you know, the main divide nowadays is not between the left and the right. It's between yes, growth or no growth. 
from various points of view. And that also means future looking or past looking quite often as well. We see the, the past looking, backward looking politics on the far right and the far left quite often. The center should be the forward looking part of this. We have to learn the lessons of the past, but we have to be targeted on this future of more and better. That is the animating force of any basic liberal politics. Without that hope of progress, liberalism is literally hopeless. And this, this, that gives you the endless present effect of the neoliberal time. So that's eco-modernism. Seven, and this is connected, democratic futurism. This is about embracing the future, uncancelling the future, and saying we have, we should be as free people embracing technological change. And I, I'm preaching to the choir here at this conference, I know that. Embracing uh, the possibilities of artificial intelligence, for example, to assist us in going forward, to use this in a sensible way, but to, again, to make sure everyone's included with this and to learn from the failures of futurism in the past, which was an elite endeavor. This should be a democratic futurism. That's a futurism for all. And that, I think we can take some inspiration from the mass modernisms of the 20th century while learning from their ecological failings and learning from um, some of the, the more exclusive politics that they had. Eight, this is going to be fun in Germany to discuss this one. Civic nationalism or progressive nationalism. Embrace it. It can be ours too. And this, I mean, there's, there's a, a story I often tell growing up in the UK. Um, the last thing I would ever do would be to wave a St. George's flag. That was for the, the football boys at the back of the pub. Um, I didn't feel that was me. But by not feeling that was me, and many people like me doing that, we evacuated that territory of the national and left it to people we really disagree with. We allowed them to colonize our national identities. We need to take that back. Nationalism can have progressive purpose as well. And German history actually can show us that. If you look at the liberal nationalism of the 19th century, even people like, like the painter Kasper David Friedrich were drawing on this. There's a liberal possibility and a progressive possibility that comes with nationalism. And we have to recognize that nation, nations are one of the key points of identification for people all around the world. If we miss out on this, we miss a key way to, to reach people. And you can see the effect that Ukraine has had on thinking about this. Rallying around the flag has made some people really uncomfortable, but it's also inspired others to say, this is okay. This doesn't mean you're illiberal. It doesn't mean you're far right. It means you're actually fighting for the right cause and you do so in a way that is um, democratic and is national. The key here is the civic element of this nationalism, that it is not a totally essentialized, impermeable, immovable, exclusive form. It's something that people can enter into through performing particular values, through performing particular ways of being. So it's a civic nationalism that can be inclusive as well. Last two, team power twice. Now, team power at home, what does this mean? It means getting different societal actors working together as allies. Government, business, civil society and education sector, and the general public. Often we've seen the interests of business and government, of business and society, being in tension. There are ways to align these interests, to fa properly factor in geopolitical risk to business decision-making, and to better factor in prosperity to government thinking, to make sure that people are included in that prosperity brings people with us in the society. So getting our noses pointing in the same direction, in rough terms, because it's a democracy, people have different ways of, of going about this, but nonetheless to understand there are certain things that we can unite around and achieve only together. For, for a great example of this, I'd recommend anyone to read Chris Miller's book, Chip War, which is one of the single best books in the last two years. And it's on all the top 10 lists for very good reasons. 
which talks about how um, Silicon Valley got started and how this was a story of scientists, a story of defense industry, a story of military men. It was men at that time, but also a story of entrepreneurs and a story of needing the mass market to actually drive things beyond the initial defense-oriented production of semiconductors. It shows the value of the nexus that only we in free societies have. And this is also why with our action group Titan Vendor, we work a lot with the business community. So last one, team power abroad. This is about working with allies. All of this needs to be done with our friends, needs to be done with those whom we share values with. And Aaron, this is something we talk about a lot, isn't it? That we have a lot of friendships that we don't use properly. Oh, definitely. And that's, um, it, it, during our season, we found out things that I'm shocked, even shocked me a little bit. Like I had no idea um, until we did our episode um, with the Canadians that uh, Germany does not have a defense cooperation agreement with Canada, for example. That seems like such, yeah. such low-hanging fruit, you know? It's, it's Canada. <laughs> we are well-loved um, by uh, by Germans and you know and and, and, and many and, others. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so this is such an easy thing that we can just do to um, to immediately just um, uh, strengthen the ties that we have together with our with our friends. Um, this also is something that we hear from business that they um, you know if uh, they we hear from business that many of them are actually interested in uh, you know de-risking from China, um, reducing exposure, this kind of thing. But they need um, help from government to, to do that. They need government to basically say, this is what de-risking is and this is what it's not. But also um, to uh, help do things um, like um, open up um, some of the necessary agreements that we need. The fact that uh, the EU can't uh, conclude a trade agreement with Mercosur, for example, is pretty scandalous. Um, so the, these are these are these are new um, things that we should be thinking about, and um, also uh, some of them are actually quite easy um, to do. It, they are. That's right. And this, I mean, it's a strange thing to think that Canada would be way down the priority list for German diplomacy, because it's not a problem. Therefore, it's not an issue. And it's not a priority. And that's, we need to start reversing that way of thinking. We have these friendly relationships that we should be using for much more together. What we have to overcome is the notion that the cheapest is always the best. We've built amazingly efficient and incredibly vulnerable global supply chains. And we see this very clearly with the semiconductor industry, but it's also a lot of others as well. And understanding that it might cost us a little bit more to pay the national security premium, as you call it, Aaron. In the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, but it's not a cost only it's an investment. And it's that investment in our future security and prosperity that we need to be taking seriously. But also the very last aspect of team power is looking at what the different roles on that team are and working out how to help our allies play the best role they can while being the best we can and understanding those there are different roles. Germany will not play the same role as Estonia. And that's okay. This is also why, for example, the Chancellor's policy of saying we are pursuing the same policy as Washington Sounds fine from an allied basis, but it really isn't because Germany is not the US. We don't have their oceans. We don't have their nukes. We are much more drastically and directly exposed to a different kind of threat than they are. So the same policy, it's not one size fits all. And that's the mistake that's making. So beware this kind of argumentation that looks good on the surface, but you broke it a little bit and it falls apart. So this is where, having given the warning straight up front, this is how we need, I think, to be thinking in the long term about how we do better as democracies, how we make sure that democracies not only survive, but actually thrive and indeed win, as Aaron said, the systemic competition. But the basis of that starts right now in Ukraine. 
to give ourselves the chance to do this. So it starts in Ukraine, it moves out to our defense. And this military readiness part that I put at the beginning is the thing that will allow us to then take the values focus first. I think we should ask people what they think. Now, yeah. that, we've, now that we've hopefully suitably stimulated and provoked uh, your minds, woken up to the threat of Ukraine, please, when you ask a question, do introduce yourself so that our listeners know as well who you are. Hi, my name is Soros. I'm from the German Pirate Party. And my question is, um, what can we do that uh, we the own thinking? We, many ideas uh, in the debate about Zeitenwende are still, the German debate are still, the, the mindset is still rooted in the old Cold War. We have still the old narratives, we have still the old thinking. And what does we need um, also on the focus on the young generation to break this old this old thinking up to push forward because we have right now many activists who are for climate but who are still in the trap of this old thinking so they are for example can't use this energy for uh, pushing forward inside by the because like Benjamin says it's all interconnected and right now we have this separation of thinking and what can we do to push forward so that we can use the society, uh, energy from society to push forward for these things. The first thing I would say um, is uh, just I think we need to actually return to politics as an arena where we discuss big ideas. I think that's I think that's a, that that seems so uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. It seems so uncomfortable to say that in Germany. But I mean, um, I, I often make this point that um, when we think about the end of history argument, for for example, it's not a great argument. This I but but I feel like this is a country that bought into it more than anyone else. You know, the mm -hmm. the wall fell. We were unified. We're, we were going to live happily ever after. And politics is no longer an arena to discuss big ideas, it's a place where we preserve the glorious modernity that we have built in Germany. <laughs> we basically use it to address threats, things that we see as a threat to this glorious happily ever after modernity that we achieved. Well, I mean, fast forward to 2021, the last Bundestagswahl, and we suddenly realized that only two thirds of Germany's trains are running on time. Um, and we can't get appointments at the Bürgeramt. We can't, uh, there are people going to Denmark to get married because they can't get registry appointments. This is not, uh, this is not a, a, the kind of prosperous, efficient country that we want to live in, that mm -hmm. we think that we have built for ourselves. We fell asleep at the wheel. So I think that we need the first thing um, and before um, I turn this over to you, Ben, is to really just get comfortable with the idea that politics should now be once again an arena where we discuss ideas and, it, and, and big ideas, not simply, you know, how we best preserve the, uh, the status quo and speak in code all the time. That's right. I mean, Chris, Chris Alexander, who uh, had, we had on the podcast before, said we put democracy on cruise control. And I think that, you know, your term asleep at the wheel is absolutely right there. Um, what really struck me was another person we talked to, uh, Alexandra Matvichuk, who said, um, we've become consumers of democracy, not producers of democracy. And we need to get back into that. And what you mentioned about preservation, I think, is key. Preservation equals stagnation. And the stability of the Merkel years was stagnation and falling behind, failing to invest in the future. There are enough people in Germany who recognize that's not good enough and who want to change, but there's not quite the coherent political thrust to provide the vehicle to drive that forward. And I think we saw this very encouragingly with those um, anti-IFD demonstrations. Millions of people coming out on the streets over a series of weekends, short notice demonstrations called 
That is a very encouraging sign, but without clear political direction and without ideas, as Aaron said, to, to draw this together, that can easily dissipate. And that would be a waste to squander that opportunity. So let me say a couple of things. Sure, to you, excellent question. And nice, nice to see you again. Um, you said we're stuck in the Cold War thinking. I, I wish we were stuck in Cold War thinking to some degree. And this is what Boris Pistorius often draws on. I mean, he he's, describes himself as a Cold War kid. He grew up on the front line, uh, understanding the, the, uh, the, what your responsibilities are as a frontline state. The need to defend, which is the basis of the rest that comes. Um, security is the irreducible function of the state and of our societies. Without that, we don't have anything else. And this, this is what Artis Pabrik's former um, Deputy Prime Minister of Latvia said. He respects greatly the actions of the Klimaklaver, the activists who are sticking themselves to various things around, around Germany and elsewhere, but ask them if they think that their climate politics would be better addressed by a dictatorial regime. Who would care? How to care about that in an unfree society? So, as I said earlier, this isn't an either-or. We have to address our ecological change, the ecological mega-transition that we, we need to master but to do that, we also need to get our geopolitics and our geostrategy right. And to do that, we need to have a society where people feel included and have a stake in the future. And this, I think, when you talk about young people, I mean, young people are the future, but what they want is a better future. And that's what we're not able to co coherently and compellingly provide at the moment. So I think that there are politicians who understand this very well, some of the ones we work closely with um, from across different mainstream political parties in Germany who are starting to think about how you do join up those issues and compellingly make it. But as Aaron said, you win, win the ideas battle first. Um, so I think that transformation is key. But what is often confused for this is that you just need to have hope. And naive hope is one of the most dangerous forces in politics. Credible hope is the essential force of liberal politics. And that's what we're not actually providing seriously in a way. And I think the, the clinging to that world of yesterday that the Schultz Chancellery in particular seems hell-bent on doing, preserving that world from which Germany did rather well. And, and let's be clear, Germany made a huge success of itself after the Second World War. That is a society transformed and reinvented to great success and then hits the snooze button. And he said, right, time to revive that kind of striving, that kind of thriving. There. And the lazy reading of the end of history, which even Sir Thomas Bagger from the German Foreign Office, State Secretary, one of the sharpest diplomats working in Germany, said, you know, Germany is that end of history country. And it was the lazy reading of the end of history that says there are no big political questions and that progress comes automatically. That simply by spreading liberal economics, we will ensure the survival of liberal politics and even spread it. This was grossly mistaken. And that is what we have to change. This only comes through striving and through working hard at it with the right ideas and the right people connected. We do have, I think, a floor of um, vo voters in Germany that will vote for the off day no matter what. But um, I do think that there are still um, people who are looking at voting for the off day who can, who can be won back. Um, and part of the attraction of the off day, um, rightly or wrongly, um, is the fact that they do make these big, bold pronouncements. Now, obviously, we would disagree with the solutions that they put on the table. I don't think that uh, they're very viable myself. But the point is, is that they have a certain way of communicating. It's a harsh truth, 
but it is, I think, part of their appeal at the moment. But I think that we can win some of those people back by also having um, bold ideas that actually do work and include people. So Yeah, and we've got a question now. Let me just add one thing very briefly to what Aaron said. This clear, clear ideas that emotionally resonate. We shouldn't be scared of emotions. And that's not the opposite of good policy. Good policy will have both emotional and rational components. They reinforce each other. And we have to give people that forward-looking connection that Deutschland aber normal is backward-looking. What was that normal? I mean, it's an invented normal. This is the classic nostalgic politics that you try to restore a past that never was. Take back control in the UK. Make America great again, etc., etc. Where's our forward-looking equivalent? And this is why we do neo-idealism. This is why we're trying to push this forward um, in a serious way. Over to you, sir. Thank you very much. Um, Alexia Wilson, I'm from the Swiss Fire Party. Um, and uh, I, I really appreciate all, all your points. I think the, the, the fact of like going into uh, positive progress, uh, addressing climate uh, change, all the way you express the things are, are really good. But I, I was struck by, by, by two points, and, um, and then I understood why uh, you're making uh, one mistake, but I think it's, um, you can repair it. <laughs> so let's see. Let's see if if you would you would agree on this. So so the first point that struck me was was the the, the, the fact that you want those um, uh, international institutions to work. And uh, I used to uh, my first career is at the UN, and uh, the way you expressed things were were flawed because you you project yourself the how you want them to be, and they were not designed the same before that. Um, why 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 did you do this mistake? And then you go back to another point, which is the point. Well, you were careful uh, warning us, saying, oh, I want to have this, like, uh, civic nationalism. And, um, and where uh, you were saying, oh, uh, we want to uh, get back the local the public debate locally, uh, be proud of this, this region. Uh, and again, I was like, yeah, on the outcome, this is also what I think I want. And I think it's just positive. But the, the, the fact that you had to say, oh, I warn you this, about this theme of nationalism there, um, points now to the flaw because these two links points up together. You are assuming that, um, and, it, and this is fair because most people don't, don't um, this is also my view, might be not shared by everyone here, uh, that uh, you're still functioning in a mode where nation states are uh, the, the, the main point of, of, of systems that we have. But I, th I think what now leads to a point that might help you is that this is my conviction that. We had the nation state was an element of organization for a time period, which is the age of industry, uh, which is like 200, 300, 300 years uh, a wide age. Uh, and now we are moving into another age, which is the age of information. And, and, and actually, in the Silicon Valley, if you look at uh, uh, people which are considered <clears throat> my enemies, uh, actually, we are reading uh, someone like Peter Thiel is extremely aware of this because he, he read a book called uh, The Individual Sovereign. Mm. You, you might uh, uh, have read that book too. And, um, and actually, it's very interesting when you read it because the analysis is not about the conclusion. You, you can take your own conclusion. Uh, Peter Thiel takes his own conclusion, I take my own conclusion. But the, the key thing is that we moved into an age which is different. Uh, and so this is a fundamental change. And it supports the theory that the end of history was wrong. And that's totally fine. Um, but then you need to inscribe this, your, your, your points into this large uh, change. Because I think people, uh, in general, even if they don't um, it works on this, even if they realize this, they actually already live in that information age, right? Because they are communicating through um, 
even on the climate change, we see some like very simple ideas like reproducing what someone is doing on the other side of the of the planet, right? Like cleaning the beach, and I will do the cleaning the beach myself and, and show you the picture. This is a kind of phenomenon where you see these things happening. So yeah, that's my critic and my mm -hmm. proposition to 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 maybe. Um, uh, think about what the role of nation state and the, the new forms of governance and uh, and there's some like crazy and I'm, I'm just throwing this here also uh, there is one place that where they have so I'm coming from Switzerland where we have a strong uh, democratic uh, approach which is very local uh, and there is one region which is in a, in, a, in, a, in a very difficult position that has to define a organization has to define a place where they take care of uh, Equality with women, they take care of uh, environment, but they are they don't have any borders. And so what they did, they they took the Swiss model, they redesigned a uh, system called confederalism, democratic confederalism, uh, and it's written by Abdullah Jalan, and it's what happened in Rojava, in Rojava in uh, Syria, Turkey. Uh, so I would I would recommend you to read this. It's freely available also, and it gives it gives a, a, a first glimpse into how democracy can appear without uh, borders. Thank you so much. This this is the discussion we want to have. International institutions first. So I think that's the easier one. <laughs> Hello to all my friends in New York. <laughs> we know it's not easy in practice. Um, we do have to go back to what was the purpose of those institutions. And the fundamental purpose of the United Nations was to constrain the power of great powers to do as they will in the world in order to prevent large-scale war and to provide a forum in which those relations could be managed. So how to manage complex security and economic interdependence was that central function, but with a very clear focus on doing that for democracies. It was the democracies that designed that system. It was to protect them, nonetheless, by including other states as well, recognizing they had power that needed to be tamed somehow. I simply don't think that's what they're doing anymore. So returning to that purpose, actually, from the original side of the UN, if you view it like that, I think it's a way that we could, we could go forward. Or we need other institutions to play that role. We need institutions, concentric circles, perhaps, of those who are more like-minded with us, progressively spreading out where we have uh, coherence, let's say. There's always a tension between coherence and inclusion in these institutions. And we could settle, I think, the institutions closer to us on the basis of coherence and the larger institutions on inclusion for issues where we have to deal with others, uh, such as China, on, on a number of issues. But I think, indeed, it may, it, we need to be explicit about the political purpose of those institutions. This wasn't to provide a fair hearing for dictatorships. It was a recognition that we have to deal with dictatorships, but that we we shouldn't give up on the people within them as well. Because while dictators themselves may be anti-democratic, most of their people often aren't. They want democracy, they want freedom. And so I think we have to look at how we go about advancing those goals rather than sticking to the institutional design as the primary thing. We've come to see them as ends in themselves rather than means to ends. And that's what I think we need to invert and get right nationalism and you i mean you i i fully understand your point uh it's a point a lot of people make in different forms about we need to actually overcome this but i would say that you made a, um, a conflation between the nation and the nation state and i was talking very specifically about the nation and coming from a background in academic international relations and having done a lot of work on what i has been called multiplicity the fundamental fact 
fundamental social fact that international relations as a discipline has always tried to deal with and explain, even if it has never avowed this, is the simultaneous existence of multiple societal entities. Whether those are organized as nations and nation states or in other forms, this has always been the case. There are some in societies, and you can use societies as a shorthand here, that go beyond us. There are others to us and they live, they live in units. So this is what you don't overcome. How you govern that is a different thing, but understanding that there will be those groups to which people identify, that's the point I'm getting to here. So the nation and the international has been a key historical form of that. But one key understanding of this is that all nations are international and all societies are intersocietal. So they're constituted through their relations with each other as much as on their own terms. That doesn't mean they can't be particular and that, that particularity does change over time. It's malleable. What being German is now is different to what being German was many times in the past, but it's still a recognizable continuity as well. And so that, that's the kind of thing I'm getting at here by saying you will always have those identifications. So let's use them and work with them rather than ignoring them. Now, you can say there's multiple layers of governance that you can deal with that in uh, either more or less bordered ways. But I would put it also to you that without borders, there's no identity in some way of actually drawing who is and who isn't, uh, you, you get to, to how we form ourselves. So those are borders of different kinds, but that's something to think on more and, and reflect through, I would say. Yeah, I'd actually like to take up the nationalism point for a second because um, I was thinking back to um, a huge uh, trucker protest that happened in Canada um, some time ago um, that had a lot of anti-vaxxers, um, not, I do have to stress here that I don't believe that the um, trucker convoy movement in Canada was entirely, uh, you know, a far-right plot or anything like that, but it was um, infiltrated by far-right elements. Um, so they, they, those were there. And they had huge Canadian flags as a part of this convoy. And I remember speaking to people who said um, that they were uncomfortable with um, waving their own Canadian flag um, because... Uh, suddenly, uh, because of this convoy, um, it had become an uncomfortable association for them. And uh, and my point was, you don't abandon the flag to these guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's because because we have to recognize that somebody is always going to want to use the flag, whether it's your truckers or the boys at the back of the pub I was talking about yeah. before, right? They're yeah. going to have it, so we need to take it back and contest that. Yeah, I, and and I intend to do so. And I actually have a, a Canadian flag that's in rainbow colors. You know, I like to wave that because I like to say this is my flag. <laughs> too right. Um, this isn't. I'm not abandoning this symbol to the far right. And if you let them do that, they will take that chance. And before we come to one more question, I'll, I'll just say one thing about international institutions. However, we go um, into the, uh, another discussion about international institutions that I think we need to have. Um, you know, what rules do we need? What do we want? That sort of thing. I think that we have to be very clear-eyed about the fact that. Uh, authoritarian regimes in the systemic conflict that we talk about that neo idealists accept use international institutions as weapons, yeah. right? Um, the, the Russians and the Chinese are the most frequent users of the veto, um, right? Yeah, this, this is it. By evacuating the political purpose and focusing on the form, you leave liberal institutions open for illiberal use. And without contesting that, without understanding that purpose again, then I think we, we really suffer from that. As you say, it's weaponized against us. Precisely. So we have some more questions. Yes. Thank you. My name is Jens Oerschlegel. I'm a NAFO activist. Everyone who seriously observes Russia's announcements and Russia's actions um, tells us that they will also attack us, not only by hybrid war, but finally mm -hmm. with hot war. 
And everybody who observes the actions of the German government and also other European governments says that we are still sleeping, as you said, into a perfect storm because they are not preparing for this. Um, now, everybody tells us we should increase pressure in society towards politicians in order to finally act, to really act. It's its latest time to act. Yeah. Uh, but my impression is that the Chancellor in Germany might resist such pressure uh, even if the society clearly says that we want you to act, we want you to actually take money now to invest into our future and, and not to sleep longer. Yeah? Um, so I would like to get your perspective on how likely it is that the same chancellery will act or uh, on the opposite that they will not act and that they will act in favor of Russian, ru appeasing Russia or even maybe uh, for pursuing interests of Russia, finally, yeah, to say very clearly. Jens, thanks so much for the question and for all that you and everyone else at NAFO does to keep the fight alive, to keep the struggle going. Uh, this is about harnessing that power of free societies. Um, it's extremely important that we all use our talents and feel that those talents are valued in driving towards that common goal. So a big shout out to everyone from NAFO and all the fellas who are, who are doing this such invaluable work. We had two great uh, NAFO events yesterday, one an official side event of the MSC. So kudos to that organization for recognizing where the, the real counter disinformation action is going on. Um, yes, this is a problem. No doubt about that. We heard the report from Velt uh, just, just yesterday that Chancellor Schultz supposedly opposed the candidacy of Ursula von der Leyen as Secretary General of NATO, suggested by, by Joe Biden, uh, President Biden, on the grounds that she's too critical of Russia at this moment. And that it might create problems in later, the future. right? And Which was very telling. We also hear, I think there's a lot of the people in the security community understand that one of the reasons for, for holding back on support to Ukraine in the way that uh, the Chancellor has been doing is to secure Germany a better place at the negotiating table in future. I mean, this is a gross miscalculation of Germany's national interest. It is selling Germany's security down the river. Now that is uh, something that can be contested. There are, of course, different views on this and you can reach different conclusions. But why do I think it's important to put pressure on the Chancellery through parliamentarians and through the media? They are digging in. They are entrenched. The three decision makers in the Chancellery, uh, Olaf Scholz, Wolfgang Schmidt, Jens Plötner. But they operate in a political party, the SPD, that is a coalition of different groups. And there are groups within the SPD who understand this. There are others who are really deeply digging in against any kind of change. But we have to give the ammunition to those who do want to make change. Moreover, they exist in a coalition of different parties as well. And so the SPD government and the Chancellor's position rests on the support of those parties. There will come a point where those parties have to consider whether their party interests, be those electoral or according to their values and stated principles and their policy goals, are still being served by being in that coalition. What makes this very difficult is we know there's a reluctance to um, let the coalition collapse at a time when the IFD is on the rise, because no party wants to be the one that gives the chance for an anti-democratic party to get in. And that's, that's a fear I can really understand, but it's not one I agree with as a reason not to dissolve that coalition that is so clearly not working. I mean, the traffic light is stuck on red. The ample coalition is stuck on red. No one in Germany's interest are served by that situation continuing. I mean, the Greens are not getting what they want out of this coalition. 
if you look at their foreign policy goals, if you look at their environmental transition, green transition goals, they're not getting what they need. What the FDP, the Liberals, are getting out of this coalition is a matter of debate. They are very split on many issues. There's great inconsistencies between what um, Marie Agnes Strack-Zimmermann says on the one hand and what Christian Lindner will say on the other hand. But there seems to be some flux and some motion, and they're also calculating how they can survive as a, as a party. If enough of the people in the parliamentary groups, and really across all the four political parties, there are people who understand this precise situation you well described, if they get the number of calls from their offices, if they start to feel the heat, if it's explained to them, because this this is something that I think perhaps people don't realise, MPs deal with so many different things. And the, the difficulty of being a politician, which is why I never underestimate the difficulty of that job, is you have to know about everything. You can be asked anything. I mean, I'm, I'm a foreign and security policy expert, but I couldn't answer an agricultural policy question, but they would have to answer that too. So those who are not foreign and security policy experts often don't actually have the clear view of a lot of this stuff because they're focusing on the business of serving their constituents and doing their committee business within parliament. We can help provide those arguments to make it very clear. So, for example, the point we made before about saying Germany would face a direct missile threat. It's not a case of territory, the stopping power of territory of Eastern Europe. Making that clear, but saying here's what we can do and why it matters, is useful for make, them making the arguments within their parliamentary group, within their committees. And I think this this really is the only way that we can disrupt the current situation, unsatisfactory situation. So I understand the frustration that it's slow. I very much understand the scale of the challenge facing us, but that's not a reason to back down. That's a reason to double down. I would probably add to this um, that, uh, for one, I think you're right to bring up... Um, a sort of German public perception, because we've consistently seen that the pub, the German public is ahead of the chancellery on mm -hmm. all kinds um, of questions on support for Ukraine, uh, on even reducing dependence on China on all of these kinds of things. The German public is, is leading ahead of its elites. And uh, we obviously have a chancellery that, um, you know, is not doesn't understand the significance of that in the moment that it, that it's in. Ben's very, very right to bring up all of the points about parliamentary pressure and the kind of role that that needs to play, that that doesn't needs to play. We also need parliamentarians to remember what their job is. And um, they have forgotten that recently when it comes to uh, parliamentary motions about tourist delivery, which... Uh, they, you know, the, the other traffic like parties voted with the SPD to uh, vote down a Christian Democrat motion uh, to deliver tourists. We sometimes, I think, have to recognize that there are certain questions that just need to rise above party politics. That was certainly one of those times, and they failed that test, in my view. Um, but, I mean, uh, parliamentarians are selbstbewusst. You know, they are not, uh, they, they do have their own um, constitutional duty and job. And I think that we have to be uh, there to remind them of that as well. Yeah, indeed. So, yes, absolutely. We'll come to your question. Just one, one last comment on that. What we saw, just as a good example of this, is in April 2022, just after the Czech Republic and Poland had become the first countries to deliver main battle tanks to Ukraine, there was a, a survey done showing that 64% of Germans were in favour of delivering German main battle tanks to Ukraine. Then the Chancellery enters the public debate on this and tells us all how this is going to be a terrible escalation move and so on. And it shifted public opinion down. Expert opinion and political leadership opinion matter in shaping public opinion on foreign and security policy issues above all others, because they're the ones that are least direct in many ways to people's people's daily lives. But what we've heard from the, the focus group agency and the, the polling agency that we work with is that Germans want solutions to this problem. 
And that when uh, it was it was Roderick Kizabeta who told us very clearly on when he's going around the country, not only his own Valkreis, his constituency, but around the country, voters are very happy when people do connect the issues up and offer a way forward. And that's the message we need to be getting through more consistently. So we have to keep hammering at it. And this is very frustrating, but I think it was Jack Welch, the, the famous head of um, General Electric, the huge US corporation, who said... By the time you've got bored of hearing your message, someone else will have heard it. And that's about getting through every time. And that's a lot of politics as well, is endless repetition of key messages until they catch. So fully share the frustration, but let's get to it. And with, with NAFO's help and others, we do amplify. My name is Peter Sarah. I'm just a concerned citizen of Germany. Uh, and I have one question because um, I thought that uh, the German government failed to get uh, a legally compliant uh, budget in maybe the worst time one can think of. Do you see any uh, movement to, to overcome the paralysis? Why? Because uh, if uh, we start spending the money to, to equip Ukraine, this will cost a lot of money. And if you don't have a budget, it's a great question and this is one of the hot button issues in Berlin at the moment I mean what we saw was one one gross act of political self-harm compounded by another the introduction of the debt break and is just fiscal idiocy um, and this is something that most serious economists have been saying for for years you need investment in your country's future and that is what this is hindering um, what the mechanism that was used to try and get around this, the Sondervermogen, the special funds, all, all smacked a bit of the old Enron and uh, <laughs> Arthur Anderson kind of tricks. So I, I don't, I'm not surprised that the Constitutional Court voted it down because you can't say we have fiscal responsibility on this side and here's a load of stuff we're just not going to look at. So let's pretend. They, they uh, introduced the legal mechanisms that forced the... Uh, to judge like this. Exactly so. This was it. So this whole system was basically been set up to fail in that. Now, when there is a justification for this special fund is in an emergency situation, a Zonda situation gives us Zonda Vermogen the possibility. What I'm struggling to understand at the moment is how our extreme security threat in Europe is not a special situation. And this, we, we've talked to several MPs uh, at the Munich Security Conference about this, and there are different views. I think that's where we should be pushing is, again, to raise this alarm call and say, this is not the same threat now as two years ago. This is something different because of the way we've gone about it. And so actually accelerating that understanding is a short-term way to address this. But in the longer term, I think the, the country needs a bigger discussion about the debt break as a whole. And what I think some of the argumentation that's often used is, is twofold. From the FDP and others, they say, if we re remove this, don't think that extra money is going to be spent on defense. It's going to be spent on SPD, social programs, and greens, green transition stuff. Well, a lot of that's going to be necessary anyway, but it shouldn't be a case where Germany then runs completely wild. However, I don't really think massive wild spending is so much in the German entrenched political character. There is a very clear consciousness of why you can't go about that, why you do need to run balanced budgets in the long term, but I think it would give the flexibility in the shorter term to potentially deal with this. The other argument that is given is that the German public want this because when we ask them, they want fiscal responsibility in that way. 
normally those are the kind of single poll questions that tell you very little about what people actually think. So you say, do you want more investment? Yes. Do you want more government debt? No. So, right. Okay. You know, do, <laughs> how, how do these things actually work together? Where is the tension in that? And the deeper research on that, I think, shows a bit of a different picture. And that's something that we're going to be trying to surface a little bit more in the coming coming weeks, months and, and years, because it probably will take that long. But again, it's about recognizing the situation we're in. I think should future generations look back and say we failed to defend ourselves because we didn't want to engage in a little bit of more debt, it's not going to be a credible excuse at all or a credible reason. And un- helping our politicians understand that is really important as well. I also think that this is um, where the seizure of Russian assets also comes in. Um, You know, we do need to um, obviously uh, put money on the table to support Ukraine. We have to be ready to do our part to do that um, as taxpayers. But at the same time, I think we are uh, right to ask our politicians, why are you leaving this, uh, this money on the table? You know, like have some respect for your taxpayers who, you know, are doing their bit. Um, But let's make the aggressor pay. Let's take this money. And it's in the hundreds of billions. Right. So that's going to make um, a a potential serious impact also help alleviate some of this pressure, I think. It is. And one last comment to that. We we had a brainstorming session about Russia for seizing Russian assets and how to try and find the will. And there was there was a very good international group of experts and politicians who came to do this as well as government representatives. And. What Aaron said is is exactly right. Why are we telling our population we can't afford this when that money is right there? We can make Russia pay for its own defeat. I mean, that is, I think, inescapable logic here. What is the argument that's used? I I was really frustrated in Berlin at a discussion we had when one of the the government ministries, which will remain nameless, (laughs) said, but if we do this, if we seize the assets, that will make us as bad as the Russians. I said, are you crazy? You know, this is, there's a big difference between actually finding a legal way to take state assets from, uh, from Russia and launching an aggressive, illegal, genocidal war against your neighbors and killing hundreds of thousands of people. That failure of proportional reasoning was absolutely mind-blowing. But I think it shows two things. One, the willingness to put the excuse first and to put the obstacle first, so to find the problem rather than the solution. And the second is a terror of being having seen to do the wrong thing, to break the rules, to be the one without clean hands. But if you think about what, what is the damage that could potentially be done if this went wrong, you set an international precedent that some perhaps in the global south, horrible term, some around the world would be worried that they, if they transgress international law, they could have their assets seized. I don't, I don't think anyone's seriously talking about doing that. This is an incredibly special situation that we have to recognize as such. But moreover, whatever damage this did to international law, however small it was or however big it was, whatever damage it did to international order is nothing compared to the damage that is done by letting Russia's aggression go unpunished and by potentially rewarding Russian aggression. So we have to be able to get that message very clearly across. And again, it's providing this clear argumentation Step by step. Well, first of all, to separate the real obstacles from the excuses and then to find ways to overcome those obstacles. And that this is a task of reasoning and it's a task of logic and it's a task of evidence. And that's that's our job. That's what we do as decision shapers. Um, I have a background in, of course, uh, security from an academic perspective, but also uh, more traditional law enforcement And one thing that you said earlier that really caught my attention was 
a lack of perspective when it comes to the proportionality of things. I mean, in law enforcement, really around the world, the proportionality principle is like at the heart of everything. Same thing with security. Uh, would you say that there is a, a, a disparate perspective there so that there's a, a big difference between uh, the political environment and industry when it comes to understanding what proportionality means? Because it, there's definitely a big difference between the industry and the public. I've noticed, but is, does that difference exist also in the political sphere? And, and by industry, you mean business or you mean law enforcement as industry? Uh, I mean both. Okay, good. Uh, I come from Sweden where uh, the private sector and the public mm. law enforcement sector work together. Yes, okay. And could, could you uh, so, tell us your name as well? Um, if, if you're comfortable with doing yeah, that. Uh, I'm Bo. Hi. Uh, on my, on my um, tag here, it says Sarah Yelmerson. Okay. Uh, I did the two presentations yesterday about... Um, radicalization and uh, stress and security vulnerabilities. Super, thanks. Thanks, Bo, very much for your, for your question. Um, I think this relates to a wider issue that Aaron and I, we've talked about before. We, we actually have most of the tools we need to address our problem. We have most of the intellectual tools as well as the practical tools that we need to address our problems, but we're not using them. In uh, a session that we had um, on Friday here with uh, three Baltic foreign ministers, uh, it was a wonderful discussion. And one of them said, we're scared of our strength. We don't embrace our strength. We don't embrace our power. And I think that willingness to engage in proportionality has always been a key strength in liberal democracies because it says that this, there's a certain amount of trust and there's a certain amount of willingness to make let people make decisions that aren't ruled only by rigid principles that don't really reflect the real world. My name is Friedrich. I'm now for activists um, also. And I spoke yesterday about uh, East Germany because I am living there and I was born there and I was born under a um, Soviet system in the past. So my question is the following. Um, you spoke about the identity of nations and about Germany and the identity of Germans. And this is my problem because we don't have. So um, I think we should not forget that um, our nation was born not in 1949, but in 1990. So we are very young and a third of um, our country was under restrictions and under dictatorship till 1989. This, a lot of people forget this, and also international politics forgets about this problem. And so a lot of people in Germany are not inside the democratic system. They don't understand this. These are 17 million people in Germany. And we have the problem if you live there, I mean, I mean your point of view is very from outside and from above. And I fully agree 100% with, with you, but I live in East Germany and I live there under people who don't understand the democratic system, who are not inside, who cannot react on this. Um, there are closed areas, you cannot move there. There's fascism, there's racism, and there is kind of thinking in a Soviet um, point of view, you know. 
So the problem is uh, we will not be we will not be a nation uh, with own German identity in the next two years. We will not get this. Um, first, we have to to work on this traumas we had we had in in the past and new traumas, and we have to solve this and to heal this. But we have not this time at the moment, and this is really a big problem. Would it be perhaps a possibility to focus in this time not on Germany, but on Europe, and give big ideas um, on that focus, and tell the people your future in Germany is not only in Germany, but is in Europe, and to give them um, the possibility to think European, because this is the way we can we cannot solve the problem as Germans, but we can solve the problems as Europeans. And to feel like Europeans is a new, a bigger identity we could give them, perhaps. And a very small second question: If you would live sure. in East Germany in this situation, what would you personally do? Absolutely great question, and a really big one to deal with. Um, First, just to note something, I actually might have slightly more experience with East Germany than you might think. Um, my, my, I have family connections there and spend quite a lot of time in the former DDR. Uh, it's part of the Germany I know actually better than a lot of the Old West, um, which is unusual for a foreigner quite, quite often. Um, and one thing that struck me when I lived and worked in Hamburg was how little people there knew about East Germany. Uh, it didn't prevent them from having an opinion on it. <laughs> that, was, that was very clear. Um, but I would, I would actually push, I'd do two, two things. I'd push back against a couple of the assumptions that you, you gave us. Um, because, I mean, you say 17 million people living under this um, mentality, this system. I, I know it's shorthand. I know you, you have a more nuanced view on that, I'm sure. But it's important for our listeners to understand. If you go to Leipzig, it's a different story. If you go to the big, bigger cities, it's a different story. But it's also much more mixed elsewhere. I don't see the same uniform picture. I see uh, the mixed history in the DDR of people who really suffered under that regime, who resisted that regime. I mean, remember, it's East Germans who actually are the, the Germans who stood up to fight for freedom and democracy and successfully did that. That's something that's often forgotten in this process too. Um, there are challenges, there are difficulties, and I don't want to underplay those at all. But I also don't think it's helpful to say German identity began, began in 1990. I mean, one of the key acts of reinvention after the Second World War, the very statement, we are a nation of grandfathers and no fathers, connects you to the grandfathers. And there were lost, the lost objects of German identifiable culture that were able to be drawn on. Think of... of the paintings of Friedrich, think of the music of um, any number of the great German composers. These were things that go back before. There was the, And these things are not unrelated to political identity. There is a Germanness that is attached to some of those. However, it might not work in musicological terms. It works in people's attachment to them. German literature. I mean, think of the, think of the Romantics, think of Goethe, think of Schiller. That goes way back before then. So while the state was born in... No, it wasn't because it was actually the merger of the the state uh, from, from 1949 with then the DDR and Wolfgang Schäuble was very clear about this. You know, you're joining us, which I think was part of the problem about that whole, that whole transition was styled because it created that, that hierarchy there. Um, so I think the, the, the picture is more complex. I think going to Europe is dodging the problem. And I think that's what Germany has done. 
submerging its interest in European interests and exercising power through denial by saying this is all for Europe, that's not something that Germany's eastern neighbors are going to accept anymore. They certainly want a clear statement of this is Germany, this is where we are, this is what we want. Now, again, that might be outside and above, but I don't think it's opposed to giving people a tangible stake in their future. And my reading of why in particular, um, and this, this is based on also conversations with the people who do survey research and who do focus group research in these regions, why is the growth of the IFD there so significant? It's not because the number of people with extreme far-right views arising, it's because more people feel excluded from decision-making processes, feel they don't have a credible stake in their own future, do not see the kind of connection to good potential standards of living in future that they would like to see. There's a feeling of exclusion that politics is happening somewhere else for someone else, by someone else, and that these people are being ignored and patronized. But there are, again, islands of hope. If we look at Silicon Saxony, if we look at a lot of the other things, investments that are being put into the East, uh, Rolls-Royce just outside of Berlin, the biggest um, employer in Brandenburg until Tesla came. It's a much more mixed picture. I think it's a problem we have to deal with, but I do think we need to get the problem right and not overgeneralize it. Um, the other thing that strikes me as fascinating in this regard is for those people who do have still a positive view of the Soviet regime or still have that mentality, as you put it, why is that so different compared to the Central East European countries who were occupied? And that, I think, is a conversation we need to encourage to happen more. So I think um, some kind of exchange and encounter programs between Lithuanians and Saxons, between Estonians and Brandenburgers, would be something that we should try to work more on. So very complex, very interesting and very important question. But I, would, I don't want to dodge it. And I think Germans should be able to have an identity they have our to. So that's, I think, but let's continue continue the conversation. And anyone who would like to also send us more information about their situation in, in East Germany would be great. So we're up for that. With the Action Group Titan vendor, we are actually going on tour around Germany and we will be doing conversations with people in uh, Magdeburg, in Waren, which is in Me Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, as well as in very many other cities around Germany. Remember uh, that we mentioned earlier uh, about the need for politics in Germany to come back to um, a place where we discuss big ideas. I think that's uh, very, very, very necessary in, East, in Eastern Germany. Um, I saw some data literally last week about how real wages in Eastern Germany are predictably the lowest in Germany, right? You know, that's not, not a problem that's going away if you don't have some big ideas to really uh, help fix that. The other thing I would say is, um, and I've written about this before, is um, uh, uh, there's a lot of holes in German memory culture. We love to congratulate ourselves for it. And there's many good reasons to do that. Um, but I think that we, uh, as Ben mentioned, uh, we had an episode with uh, some uh, Baltic foreign affairs uh, chairs who talked about Baltic memory culture. I think we can actually learn a lot from them because uh, we internalized um, the nightmare of war. Uh, they um, are much better at um, having a memory culture built around the memory of occupation. And this is, this is a trick that we've missed. We don't discuss the effect of um, occupation nearly enough. My grandmother uh, was 15 years old when uh, the war ended and she was in Chemnitz at the time. She talked about running away from Russian soldiers who were attempting to rape her on numerous occasions. And this is a trauma that we basically almost never discuss. I think that's a problem. And if we did discuss it, I think perhaps we would look at things like Bucha and Ukraine with a, and have a more visceral reaction and say, you know, let's defend this freedom, et cetera, et cetera. So we, 
do need to have certain discussions around occupation, I think, and we're not having them. We do, and about the costs of unfreedom and what it means to live in tyranny. And that is it. We, we, we're out of time. I'm being reliably informed. Thank you all for a wonderful discussion today. But let me just close with saying one thing. We talked a lot about the role of ideas. I heard recently in Berlin at a leading think tank, I won't say which one, um, that the problem with the approach we take is that people are not used to being disrupted by ideas. We have to change that. And we will continue to disrupt with ideas. And thank you all for joining us today and discussing those in such great detail and great uh, engagement. Thank you all. Yes. <laughs> so I'd like to thank you everyone for your questions and for joining us on this special live episode of Berlin Side Out or Munich Side Out from Munich at the Pirate Security Conference. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our hosts. Uh, we hope we've left you with some key ideas for how to change Germany's mindset from surviving to winning, uh, both in Ukraine and in the struggle uh, between democracies and authoritarians more generally. Our second season is kicking off soon, so please stay tuned for news about that. As always, thank you to our project assistants, Yulan Stukla, our producer, Hendrik Vanna. Until we see you again from Munich, Auf Wiedersehen and tschüss.